This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to Science Friction and to Future Uterus, this mini-series of ours taking a womb's eye view of the future of reproduction. Hiya, I'm Natasha Mitchell. When Lolita was 14, she felt this strange pain in her middle. So I went to the doctor. The doctor examined her but detected something surprising and went and got a colleague for a second opinion. She was asked to come back for a more thorough examination. They had to put me to sleep and do an exam with a camera. And when I woke up, the doctor was sitting there with a paper and pen and he was drawing and said that uterus can look a lot different from woman to woman. And I asked him, well, how does mine look? And he simply said that you don't have any. You don't have a uterus? No. So at age 14 in 1994, Lolita was told for the first time that she'd been born without a womb. I felt like a freak. I didn't know what I was. Because you've always been told that a woman's going to get the period and you're going to have a baby and all that. And I always loved children and I always wanted. What was I now? I was heartbroken. The day after I came home, I wrote in my diary, please, can somebody give me a uterus? Which makes what happened to Lolita 18 years later all the more extraordinary. In the last show, we imagined a world where babies are created in artificial wombs, where society has opted for portable baby pouches instead of pregnancy. That was all pure sci-fi, of course. What you'll hear today, though, is real frontier science, transforming and, in fact, creating real lives but provoking all sorts of ethical questions too, which are front and centre for bioethicist Dr Nicola Williams from Lancaster University. So I suppose the uterus is different in that it's a symbolic organ of womanhood. And that's why it's quite important to many women with absolute uterine factor infertility, because they don't feel whole sometimes. And this potent symbolism of the uterus might explain why Lolita says she felt an inexplicable shame about the secret she carried inside her body. The condition she was born with is called Maya rokitansky kusterhauser syndrome. It's just one cause of absolute uterine factor infertility. And just to meet boys was difficult. I know that boys in that age doesn't think about kids. But Lolita just always felt like she had to let them know that she didn't have a womb. I mean, you can imagine how awkward that conversation would have been, talking babies with teen boys. But I've always felt I have to be two steps ahead. Your sister's reaction at the time, when you were 14 and received this news, was was really interesting. What happened? Tell us. Well, she said that you can have my uterus. I don't want kids, so you can have mine. How old was she? This is your older sister. Yeah, she was 18. Life had other plans for Lolita's sister. She went on to have four children, but her pledge to her little sister remained. Now, attempts to transplant one woman's uterus into another, in fact, started with the case of a pioneering transgender woman. The first uterus transplant took place in 1930 for the Danish artist Lily Elby. You may have seen the film about Lily called The Danish Girl. I believe that I'm a woman. And I believe it too. Surgery has never been attempted before. 
Unfortunately, the transplant fails and it causes her death, which is unsurprising given that immunosuppressants weren't even discovered until the mid-1970s and there was very little knowledge about proper organ retrieval and storage procedures. But 80 years later, scientists and surgeons were more confident. I mean, in the beginning, they thought we were crazy. To be honest, did they? <laughs> but yeah, they, they they thought we were nuts doing this. Dr. Lisa Johannesson is a gynaecologist obstetrician who heads up the uterus transplant program at Baylor University Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. But she started out as a member of a trailblazing Swedish team, leaders in developing the procedure. So we started in in small animals like rodents, mice, and rats. We did transplants in them, and we had successful deliveries in rats and mice. Uh, we went through phases where we tried the surgery in, in sheep and also in uh, pigs. And then as the final step before clinical implication, we, we even did it in non-human primates, just to mimic the conditions with humans as much as we could. So in baboons? Yes, in baboons. And what were the challenges as you developed that technique, as you developed the procedure? I mean, this is an organ transplantation, so rejection of that transplanted uterus is a big issue. It seems like it's not that big of an issue that we thought it was in the beginning. But when we did the trials in the baboons, that was certainly challenging because baboons don't necessarily take medications as you would want them to. So we had we struggled with rejections in the baboons and, and medical administration. But when it comes to humans, it actually looks like the, the uterus is, is fairly resistant to, to rejection. And no one has lost their uterus due to rejection so far. When Lolita was 19, she saw media reports about those scientists and their animal experiments, and she even rang Matt Bronstrom, head of the team, to ask if they could help her. Yeah, I don't know, I think he was surprised, and I guess he was just in the beginning of something. And But they were only doing studies in mice at that very early stage. Fast forward a decade on, by now Lolita had met and married her husband and she desperately wanted a child. The science had advanced dramatically too. The Swedes had approval for a human clinical trial and that caught the world's attention. It is an extraordinary development. Dr Evie Kendall is a bioethicist at Deakin University with a focus on reproductive technology. I'm a little concerned about some of the ramifications of uterine transplants, partly because it is quite risky. All transplantation or surgery has its risks, of course. We have risks to donors if they're living donors, and we have the usual transplant risks uh, to recipients. But what we don't have are the same justifications as we have for life-saving transplants. So if you desperately need a heart transplant, of course, those risks have to be balanced against those benefits. So a life-saving transplant is a lot easier to justify in many ways. In the beginning, when we did this in animals, a lot of the criticism we had was that, is this even doable? Can you do this in humans? I mean, you're doing it in rats, but can you do it in humans? So that was, a lot was focused around the procedure itself. And then it's kind of evolved into what's the risk for the donors? Is it, is it ethically correct to put people through this that's healthy and give them immunosuppression? And then now the latest thing is that, is this doable from a, from a cost perspective. Who are we going to replace this procedure with? Who's not going to get access to healthcare because we, we pay for the uterus transplants? So the, the ethics has evolved as the procedure has uh, throughout the last decade. 
Uterus transplants are difficult and thorny. They are complex, (laughs) ethically, scientifically, socially. Uterus transplantation is quite interesting because it has a dual status as both a transplant and a reproductive technology. Dr Nicola Williams, her work centres around the ethics and economics of uterus transplants. And because of this, it's the most expensive reproductive technology available and also the riskiest. But that does highlight another really interesting thing about uterine transplants. They are the only temporary transplant. So all of the risks with rejection and the requirement to take anti-rejection drugs, that is actually a temporary state, but you will leave the clinic either way infertile again. And I think one of the issues I'm having with uterine transplantation is it might serve as a distraction to better cures for infertility. And the reason I think it might be a dangerous distraction from the development of bioengineered wombs like or actually fixing the womb injury that might have happened to a woman that is preventing pregnancy is because when IVF was found to be successful, work on actually unblocking fallopian tubes, uh, one of the major causes of infertility that IVF does circumcept, was actually abandoned for the most part. So women are now dependent on an industry that they go in and pay lots of money for to go around their body rather than actually giving them the experience that they want. And so back to that Swedish trial and Lolita's story. Back in 2011, the springtime, there was an article in the newspaper saying that they were ready to to take the the next step and try this on human. People reached out to us. They heard about our animal experiments, and we didn't we didn't advertise at all. These were people that came to us, and we screened them, including Lolita and her sister. I remember they were three sisters in that family, and the older one wanted to to donate her uterus, and she had already given birth to four kids of her own and she felt that she was done with her uterus. So she wanted to give it to her little sister. And that little sister's number one goal was to be able to carry her own baby. For me, it's always been important to be able to carry my own child. Adoption or surrogacy could well have been an option for Lolita and her husband, although surrogacy is legally complex in Sweden. I was dying inside. This feelings like all the shames and the depressions and it is so destroying. You're just breaking you down. Which makes the stakes very high if none of this was to work. This could make yes. it even more profound, that feeling of mm-hmm. despair for you. But for me it was important. And we thought this Lolita and her sister was a really, really good couple. So this was very early on. Essentially, they're part of this incredible experiment. Yeah, yeah, in a way they were. How do you communicate that to them? Yeah, at that time that was even harder because that was before we even had the first birth in the world. So we didn't know what we were consenting them for. We didn't know what the results might be. And they trusted us. They wanted to go through this. And we told them about the risk. We told them that this is, it's highly likely that this will not succeed, that you will have the surgery and the uterus will never carry a pregnancy. You will never get, become pregnant. But they anyways wanted to be part of this. 
Lolita was one of nine women in the University of Gothenburg trial in 2012, the first substantial human trial of uterus transplant surgery. Previous efforts in Saudi Arabia in 2000 and Turkey in 2011 hadn't been successful. So the first step in the process? to source a uterus, either from a living or dead donor. Luckily, Lolita had her sister. I don't know, maybe sound crazy, but for us it was just like I was borrowing a sweater from her. <laughs> I know it sounds crazy, but it's... Borrowing it's a so, sweater. It's always been so natural. <laughs> oh, a uterus, a sweater, what's the difference? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you didn't really even had to have to have the conversation, it seems. No. I wonder what it would have been a, like to have had that conversation. I imagine that would be difficult and hard. And today it's just so normal. She's the same aunt, just so normal. And I don't feel like I own her anything. You don't owe her anything? No. So for the womb transplants, it's not just the potential recipient, we have to be concerned about the rights of the donors as well. Bioethicist Dr Evie Kendall. I'm concerned ethically and socially with the kind of pressure that might be placed on, say, a mother or a sister to donate their uterus to a sister or a daughter who is desperate to be pregnant. Those pressures already exist for all live donors. So one concern, of course, and this goes back to the idea of sexual equality, we know that more mothers donate their kidneys to their children than fathers. Like, we know this. And we know that perhaps there is a social pressure on women to be more selfless and to donate uh, in a way that might actually be fairly toxic in this situation. It is not justified by you're saving the life of your child. It's you are providing the means to grow your own grandchild, uh, which is quite different in terms of outcomes. Toxic. Why would, why would the potential outcome be toxic if there is a successful pregnancy and a mother or a sister has actively, proactively, voluntarily surrendered their own uterus to the process? If it's voluntary and informed, then again, it is the business of the people involved. I'm not here to tell people what risks are acceptable to them. It's toxic if it's coming from social pressure, particularly if that's of a very gendered nature. None of our interactions with others are uncomplicated and they occur within like a very tangled web of interpersonal relationships. So even if it wasn't explicit, the feeling of being coerced might be more subtle but still there. Yes. I mean, it's very possible as well that that won't be the case. And obviously there are ways in which we can minimise the risks of coercion and undue pressure. And part of that is by ensuring that we have very robust consent procedures. I had the luxury to have two donors because me and my sister had to match, had the same blood type. And if we, we did, but if we wouldn't, I always had my mom. My mom would donated to. This is our Future Uterus mini-series here on Science Friction on ABC RN with me, Natasha Mitchell. And I'm going to come back to the question of using dead donors rather than living a little later on because it raises really gritty ethical questions. But the next step for Lolita and her husband was to undergo IVF to be sure they could create viable embryos together before her sister underwent the whole palaver of major transplant surgery. But then, finally, 
the dike heim. Me and my sister went down to Gothenburg the day before. We start always start with the donor surgery. And so they started with her and I was still at the hotel. And the donor surgery, you remove the uterus together with the vessels that feeds and takes blood away from the uterus. And you also take a part of the vagina. And that's the structure you put into the recipients. Oh, I thought time has never passed so slow. It's almost the size of a hand, you can say. And then it's attached in the, in the body to the fallopian tubes and, and in a way to the ovaries as well. But we always leave the ovaries. The ovaries are the ones that produces hormones and mm. that the, the women need up until the postmenopausal for their, their bones and their cardiovascular disease risk and all of those things. So we always leave those. And then we suture the vagina back together. So it's, it's, afterwards they, they look the same, but they don't have the uterus there anymore. And the nurse was holding my hand. So the last thing I remember, her holding my hand is like, sleep good, sleep well. And then we put the organ on ice. We look at it very carefully because we want to make sure that this uterus is going gonna, is gonna to work. And in doing that, we look at the uterus, we look at the cavity which is inside the uterus, and we look at the vessels. And then we bring the uterus in and we attach it. It's like plumbing. You attach the vessels, you attach the vagina. And stitch then them it, into place. We stitch them into place. And the amazing thing is that afterwards it looks like the uterus has been there forever. So you're lying side by side in the recovery after the surgery mm -hmm. and she no longer has her uterus. Her uterus is inside you. Mm -hmm. How did that feel? It was amazing. It was so unreal. I was so happy and, and of course I was in a lot of pain. But the, the people who was taking care of us was beautiful. The day I got the uterus, I became whole as a person, as a human being. I, I, was, I wasn't whole before. I was in pieces. And we'll come back to Lolita and her sister in the recovery room. But the very idea of transplanting a uterus between two women, sisters or a mother and a daughter, makes some people feel really squeamish. They find it quite hard to imagine that a woman's child could be gestated in the womb of their mother. Nicola Williams. And this is a, a similar concern that they've had regarding mothers who have acted as surrogates for their daughter. I don't think it has much of a rational basis. Yes, a womb is a womb is a womb, but there's something mm. about it, taking the womb from your mother, the womb that gave birth to you, and then creating a child of your own and gestating mm. a child in that very same womb. Well, there have been a lot of meanings accorded to the womb throughout history, haven't there? And so I think that perhaps our unease with transplanting this organ stems from that, perhaps. But let's come back to Lolita and her sister recovering after their big operations. Lolita was put on immunosuppressant drugs to prevent her body from attacking and rejecting her sister's uterus inside her. And these drugs have their own side effects. That's why we try to minimise the time of the uterus being in the, in the person as much as we can because we don't want to expose them to unnecessary drugs. So what we monitor is the levels, obviously, of the immunosuppressant and we also monitor cervical biopsies. So we take biopsies from the uterus in certain time points to see how the uterus is doing. What can go wrong at this stage? Have you had situations where the uterus
uterus or have you or other teams had situations where the uterus has been altogether rejected or has started to vitrify, to die? Early experiments that was done even before the Swedish trial in Saudi Arabia where they had necrosis of the uterus, meaning that the uterus started to die, but that was due to the, to the vessels and poor blood flow. We had rejection episodes, but if you see those rejection episodes early, and you do if you do the cervical biopsies, you can treat them and they go away. But the first yeah. uterus transplantation in the US in 2016 was unsuccessful too. The uterus had to come out. Yeah, uh, the one in Cleveland Clinic, which you're referring to in 2016, they had a completely different issue. So they had an infection. They had a fungal infection that affected the graft. What risks do you communicate to the donors and the recipients about this whole procedure? So we, we tell them everything we know, but it's hard because it's, it's a very limited knowledge we have so far because we don't know everything. Is it too early to be doing these in humans? I don't think so. I mean, we have very promising results. And even if we have failures and even if we have complications, they're not so severe that it would, would make us not do the procedure. When a transplanted uterus settles into its new home, it just seems to start doing what a uterus does. And in fact, that's what most spooked Lolita. Yeah, I wasn't afraid to die, but I was terrified to get in my first period. First period? I guess because you'd never had it one was... before, ever. Yeah, I never had one. And he was... I was so scared. It's like it was supposed to come blood out of me. Would I know when it was going to come? Go into a grocery store and, and just pick out a pad. <laughs> that is amazing. So much to choose. So... It was hard. So everything is amazingly normal. So they start with menstrual periods about three to seven weeks after their surgery. And the first time they're terrified. It started the night before. I was having a bad pain in my back, in my ovaries, and I didn't understand what it was. I thought something was wrong. Because it's bleeding and they think it's a rejection and they call us and they, they're horrified. And, and we were in the beginning too, but now we realise that it's just proving to work. So the uterus so have, is doing what it's meant to do? It's supposed to do that, so it's doing really well. But after all that, a functional uterus is not the desired endpoint here. Pregnancy is. So four months after the transplant, it was time to implant an embryo. Would it work? It was touch and go for Lolita. One, two, three embryos, four, five, six embryos later. And then? Oh, my God. My, my mom and my youngest sister were at our house. And I remember that I didn't want to tell them because I wanted my husband to be the first one to know. So I was standing in the bathroom and I was just crying, silent. My husband were at work. And after work, he went to the gym and after gym, he went and seen friends. So when he got home, I was so mad because I've been waiting the whole day. And three trimesters later, Lolita's obstetrician gynaecologist, Lisa Johannesson, remembers it well. Uh, were you there when the baby was born? Yes, I was the one delivering him. Oh, it was a Thursday. I called my sister and I was in the morning and I was like, yeah, well, I don't know if I'm peeing or if I'm leaking because... The water, I was dripping water. And, and uh, she started going to labour. I, I remember there, there was so many people in the, in the surgery room. And then I heard my son. 
it's, it's, it's a miracle every time you, you deliver a baby. But these women, the, the stakes are so high and you live so closely with them. So it feels like your family. It was so beautiful. He was perfect. Holding him for the first time. What was that like? Unbelievable. So worth every tears, every fear, every laugh, everything. And it's been a hard journey, of course, but it, I would do it in a heartbeat. How did you feel saying goodbye to your sister's uterus? You had to have it removed. It was hard. For a few seconds, it felt like I wasn't allowed to to feel sad because in, people thought that I was ungrateful for the son I had, but it had nothing to do with that. Just that, to, to be able to have more kids. I dreamt about it, but at the same time, I'm so happy for my son. And my sister said that after the surgery, she feels like a, more like a woman than she did before. Why did she say that? I don't know. She feels like she did this for me, and she did it for the other ladies in the world to have an opportunity to to do this and she feels stronger she feels more beautiful and she doesn't have her period anymore Lolita's son is a happy, active three-and-a-half-year-old now, the fourth out of 13 children around the world, in total, at last count at least, to be gestated in a transplanted uterus. More babies on the way this year, Dr Lisa Johannesson tells me. And she says her Dallas team now receive hundreds of calls from women who want to donate their uterus to complete strangers. But... The ethical concerns about uterus transplantations run deep, as you can imagine. Okay, so let's consider if, for cases where it might not be altruistic. I mean, organ transplantation already has created a market riddled with perverse incentives. There's a black market in the trade of organs like kidneys, um, with people, say, in, in eastern countries selling their spare kidneys to westerners in, you know, in order to, to survive, um, mm. to make ends meet. I wonder if we could consider that the same might happen for uteri. The reproductive market, it's a big industry with a lot of desire, deep desire driving it. It definitely is. And I think that the uterus is an organ that is one that would be a very likely candidate for exploitation. Bioethicist Dr Nicola Williams. It is not a vital organ. It's also one that after you've had your children, you do not particularly need or might not want to keep anymore. And this is especially a risk in low-income societies. So it could well be the case that as with kidney donation, we have situations in which young women are pressured to sell their uteruses to support their families. And that even we could find cases of the stealing of uteri Right, so we've heard cases of, of people potentially being, you know, sedated and having their kidneys stolen for the black market mm-hmm. in organs, and perhaps the same could happen with uteri. Perhaps. So the uterus becomes a biological commodity on a black market. I mean, mm-hmm. what do you think about that possibility? 
Well, I think it's entirely possible. And I think that the only way to protect against it is through effective regulation and safeguards. Lisa Johannesson is conducting the surgeries. Is she concerned about the risk of illegal trade in uteri? Yeah, so that's always going to be an issue in organ transplantation. And, and most countries and most cultural settings now has organisations like you know in America that controls all the transplanted organs. So you have to report to this organisation every transplant you do. And uterus falls under the same rules as any, any other organ transplant. So I don't think that uterus transplant maybe will have more potential than the other organs to be up for the black market. But, but for sure, that's something we have to take into consideration. Because can't we take our cue from what's happening with commercial surrogacy in countries like India, for example, where women are essentially selling their services as a surrogate to Western couples? Highly fraught. There's a perverse mm. incentive, an economic incentive for them to hand over their womb, essentially. So couldn't the same happen with uterus transplantations? They sell their womb on the marketplace. It, I mean, I, I can't say that that will never happen because, but we try to, to do this only in centers where we are highly regulated. But for sure, where there is a possibility people will go into the market as they have done in surrogacy and as they have done in other organ transplants. But uh, organ transplantation is in, in a serious setting, very regulated and uterus transplant will be as well. Yes, but it's fine to say that America is a serious setting and, and heavily regulated, but surrogacy is happening there. And could yeah. the same ethical questions around surrogacy be raised about uterus transplantations? For example, payment, for example, should a donor be paid to hand over their uterus in this procedure? That is uh, usually in, in most countries not legal to receive payments for, for organ donation. So only altruistic donation. Only altruistic. There is no payment for organ transplant. What's to say that? But there is change? a surrogacy. Then the legal the legal system has to change. Because it is presented, this procedure of uterus transplantation is presented as somehow more viable, less morally concerning than surrogacy, for example. But don't the same ethical questions remain here about uterus transplantations? What's different with uterus transplant is that the woman that is actually going to benefit from the pregnancy and the delivery is carrying the risk of the procedure. But what about the risks to donors? After all, they have to undergo a hysterectomy here in order to hand over their uterus. So some argue that dead rather than living donors would be less ethically fraught. Bioethicist Nicola Williams. So many people who've signed an organ donor card won't actually have considered ever donating their uterus when they signed that card. People might know their relatives' preferences surrounding hearts and kidneys and livers and the extent to which they would have wanted their bodies recycled or used to save the lives of another. The question of whether they'd want their uterus to be used to gestate a child for another person is quite different. Is it that different? I mean, it's a functioning organ and it's serving mm -hmm. a purpose. So to that extent, it isn't. And for many people who view their bodies as something to be recycled, one, when they're dead and they don't really care about what happens to their organs and they're quite happy for them to be used to help people in any way they see fit, then it wouldn't be a problem. But there might be people who are, for example, antinatalists who believe that the world is overpopulated and who don't 
want an increase in the world's population who might not want their uterus to be donated. When it comes to consent for uh, donation after you're dead, do we need to add another level to that form? Do we have to go back and find everyone that has previously said just take anything? Do you also mean take your reproductive organs? Bioethicist Dr Evie Kendall argues we need to treat uterus donations differently to other examples of organ donation. Its purpose is creating life rather than saving an existing person's life, which I think is different. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's more or less valuable, that's for everyone to decide for themselves. But I think it is different. And if we look at the families of dead donors, they will often feel an emotional attachment to the organ as some sort of representation of their lost loved one. And if you try and imagine how would that family feel about the birth of an infant using the uterus of their lost daughter, would they feel as if there was some sort of kinship there? Is that going to confuse everyone involved? Including the child. Yeah. And I mean, maybe it won't. And that's fine. But if it does, I think we need to be thinking about that in advance. Mm, it's tricky, though, because you could just think of the uterus as a biobag. Absolutely. A bag yep. in which to gestate a child. Yep. It's not a genetic offering. Yep. It's a bag. Absolutely. But if it is just a bag, then we have to ask why is someone going through quite an invasive surgery just to have a bag. So clearly there's something involved there. What about the science here? Is a uterus taken from a dead donor as viable as one taken from a living donor? Back to a clinician with hands-on experience. So few cases done around the world. I think it's about 50 cases. Uh, most of them has been done in living donors. So the deceased donors came later than the living ones did. So we're just now starting to see babies born after deceased donation. So we, we can't compare the numbers yet. But potentially you can have better vessels if you use a deceased donors. You, you can take bigger vessels than you could in a living donor because you don't have to be afraid of injuring structures that's close to the vessels. The con though with a deceased donor is that you can't, you don't really know how the uterus is working. You can't screen the donor as, as good as you can do with a living donor and you can't plan the procedure. The, the, the deceased donor is going to come when it comes. But it might allay some of the concerns around coercion of donors to donate their uterus, issues around payment, etc. Yeah, but then again, it raises questions on how you al allocate the organs. So deceased donors, you normally allocate them after how sick the patient who's going to receive the organ is. I mean, how how sick are you from your kidney failure? But these patients, who's going to get the organ? Well, they no one's more infertile than the other one. It's a minefield, isn't it? So many questions to explore here. And it's early days. This is a novel procedure. So clinicians like Lisa Johannesson are tracking the children born via a uterus transplant very closely in body and mind. They're for sure historical and they're for sure a population that we will follow closely. We're going to track them until they, they're going to college, probably. Your sister's children and your little boy were born using the same uterus. They are cousins. Yes. Do you all think of their relationship a little differently because they were born using the one uterus transplanted between you? No. The only thing we say is that they are the bag cousins. And my, my sister is bag aunt because my niece was only five years old. And to explain to her, we told her that I was going to borrow her mom's baby bag. Huh. 
Because uh, uterus, how do you explain uterus to a five-year-old? They had cousins and bag yes. aunts because they shared a baby bag. The only one in the whole world. It's great because I've just read a science fiction novel where mm-hmm. the whole premise is based on a future where we no longer have babies inside us in a uterus. We actually gestate them entirely in an artificial womb, which they call a baby bag. Wow. We were first. (laughs) We were first with the expression. (laughs) And thanks so much to Lolita for sharing her experiences. Next step, a scientist building an artificial womb. Talk to me on Twitter, at Natasha Mitchell. Thanks to Jane Lee and Ari Gross. Spread the word about the podcast too. Culture and Science and Spice, that's our thing here at Science Friction. Catch you. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.